Well, this morning's passages come from Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. They could be found in your bulletin. You could follow along there, or you could follow along in your own Bible. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22 through verse 25, and then chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. And would you please stand as I read the Word of God. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? And then in chapter 9, verse 10, on the return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came, and they said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Would you please be seated? And would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for these passages in the Gospel of Luke this morning, the 8th chapter, the ninth chapter, we thank You for these passages that remind us of the nature of faith. And so, Lord, we pray as we look together at this text that You would grow our faith in You. We pray, O oh Lord God, that You would show us more of Yourself, that You would show us less of our fears and the things in this world that consume our attention, that You would draw us to You by the work of Your Spirit. We ask that You would do that for Your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Well, about 10 or 12 years ago, after I had finished seminary, we moved here to Lynchburg, took my first pastoral position at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For anybody who knows the ordination process in the PCA, the first thing before ordination after seminary is to complete an internship. And so I came to Lynchburg, and the first thing on my agenda was to complete my internship. And I had the privilege of doing my internship with Mike Sherritt, which was just a wonderful joy. 
for six months, we met together once a week to go through everything pastoral. We would meet in the office and talk through the issues and work together through pastoral problems and issues. Well, one particular week, Mike called me and he said, instead of meeting at the office today, why don't you come to my house and we'll meet at my house? Sounds like a great idea. So I hopped in my car, drove out to his home in Forest, and when I arrived in the driveway, Mike was there in his khakis and button-up shirt, loading up his Suburban, an extension ladder on top, chainsaw in the back with a bunch of extension cords. I said, Mike, what are we doing? Thought we were going through the internship stuff. And he said, I had a great idea. We can work through the internship stuff while we drive to the church property. We're going to cut down a tree today. There's a tree on the property that I want. I think it's a great tree. We could cut it up and burn the wood. And we're going to go do that. And so up for an adventure, I thought this was a great idea. We arrived at the church property off of 811, right at the intersection of Bateman Bridge Road. And when we pulled up to the church property, there was this tree. 10 feet off the road, leaning out over 811. And I thought, this sounds like a bad idea. But we moved forward. And Mike gave me the extension ladder. He said, you go up the tree, you tie the extension cords, okay? No ropes, extension cords. And you're going to pull the tree back away from the road as I cut it, right? What could go wrong? So there I am pulling with all my might on this tree leaning out over 811 and Mike is cutting it at the base and like a bad dream that unfolded in slow motion before my eyes, the tree began to fall and it went right over 811. It crushed a road sign on the way down. Well, Mike goes running out into the road with his earmuffs on, dressed in his business attire, with a chainsaw in one hand, and he goes out running to stop the traffic. He must have looked like a madman. For the next 30 minutes, we cut up the tree chunk by chunk and moved it off the road. We directed the traffic around the other lane. The police never came. When we hopped in the car to drive back to Mike's house, all sweaty and dirty, I'm thinking, what in the world just happened? And Mike is driving the Suburban, and he begins to laugh out loud. And I said, what, what's so funny? It didn't seem funny to me. And he said, you wouldn't believe it. I called two different tree companies, and nobody would come take that tree down. And he said, I thought this morning, Brian can do it. <laughs> so we cut down the tree. That story reminds me a little bit of these passages this morning, you might have been wondering, what do these two accounts from Luke 8 and Luke 9, what do they have in common? And it's very interesting because they do have a lot in common. They deal with the forces of nature. They deal with the response of humanity with fear and anxiety to the forces of nature. But the takeaway from both of these passages, the, the big takeaway as we read these texts, is that if you're with Jesus, everything is going to be okay. Being with Jesus produces peace and assurance and hope. And whereas to say that about another human being is a very bad idea, I'm with Brian, we can do this. To say that of the Lord of creation is the beginning of wisdom. And the resolution to these two texts is the disciples and the apostles who get to the point where they can say, we're with Jesus. This will be all right. 
That's what we're going to see as we look at these two texts this morning. And so let me begin. The outline is on the insert in your bulletin. Let me begin with the first point here, okay? Because of the fall, the fall in Genesis 3, because of the fall, all of creation is at odds with us. All of creation is odds with us. You know, many people don't realize this or they forget this as they go about their everyday life. But in Genesis 3, when God removes Adam and Eve from the garden, He says to them, Cursed is the ground because of you. And by the sweat of your brow, you will toil among it. The picture in Genesis 3 is that man who was created to be in harmony with creation, creation that was made to serve man, are now at odds. They're opposed to one another. There's a contradictory relationship. We see that in both of these passages this morning. You think about the text in Luke chapter 8. The disciples in chapter 8, verse 22, they board these, this boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. And, and Matthew says in his gospel that they're in a number of boats. So it seems like the disciples, maybe all the disciples are with Jesus. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side. The journey, it seems, would have taken just more than an hour or two. They're paddling or sailing. And as they get to the middle of the Sea of Galilee, they rest for the evening. They go to sleep, and what happens? A windstorm kicks up on the Sea of Galilee. It's a very common thing, actually, for the Sea of Galilee. And this windstorm kicks up, and it begins to fill their boat with water. Now, that's one example of how creation in nature is at odds with humanity, not the way it was created to be. And yet here it is, opposed to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Think about the example from chapter 9. These people have gathered to hear Jesus. They're in this desolate place. They probably prepared enough food for a half a day and then they would return home. But Jesus has continued speaking and the people are intent to listen to Him. And the day has worn on and before they know it, here they are. No place to go. No place to get food. No place to get drink. And they realize very quickly they're in a predicament. Not the way that God created the creation to be. That nature would serve man. That food would be available. That homelessness would not be a thing. But in both of these accounts, we see a nature or creation that is opposed to humanity. That's the first thing that comes out of these texts. And let me tell you just a brief observation on these things. This is not the way it was created to be. It is the way it must be, and it is not the way it will one day be. All three of those things are crucial for our understanding of this world. Not the way it was made to be. God didn't create it like this. He didn't make it so that we would be allergic to the pollen of the flowers. He didn't make it so that we would be burnt by the sun and be in danger of skin cancer. He didn't make it so that storms destroyed houses and fires consumed. He didn't make it so that many would wonder where their next meal comes from or where they would find shelter. Okay? Not the way that God designed it. And yet, it is the way it has to be, at least for this time. Now, I think that's important because we always ask questions, whether it's the small things like, why do I have allergies? Or why do dogs bite? Or the big things. Why do we get chronic illnesses or cancer? 
We always ask questions like, why? Why is it like this? Well, one of the most simple, basic questions that comes out of, answers that comes out of Scripture is, it is like this because creation is now at odds with us. The animal kingdom is opposed to us. Nature is in rebellion against us. The cells and molecules within our own body are revolting against us. All of this is not the way it was created to be. And yet, the wonderful reminder is it is also not the way it will be one day. This week, when we were in staff meeting, we're talking about this passage. And as we're we're reading through this passage, Keith said, you know what the, the most interesting thing to think about this text is? To imagine what it will be like one day with the new heavens and the new earth. When all of creation and nature is at peace with us. In harmony. The Bible describes that the, the wolf lays down with the lamb. The toddler plays in the nest of the cobras. Can you imagine what it will be like one day? When Keith said that, I just sat for a minute. I'm like, my mind can't wrap around the idea. There are so many ways in which that future existence in glory with our Lord and Savior will be different. The things that we behold, the beauties we behold, the ways that creation will work in conjunction, in harmony with us to serve and to encourage would be a wonderful thing that our minds cannot comprehend. But until that day, we live in a place where creation is at odds with us. Creation is opposed to us. The next thing that comes out of that then, if you look at your handout, is that because of sin, fear and anxiety are our default reaction. And that is what happens in both of these passages, okay? The disciples and the apostles, they come face to face with the the sheer force of nature, with the sheer force of hunger and homelessness, and what do they experience but fear and anxiety? Now, I tell you the truth, in one sense, that just makes sense, okay? Because if God has made us to be in harmony with the rest of creation, if that's the way we've been designed and if what we experience is something very different, then I'm sure that within us there'll be a tension, there'll be an unease, an awkwardness. That awkwardness often produces fear and anxiety that we see in these passages. Now you look at chapter 8. In that story about Jesus calming the storm, in in verse 24 it says, The disciples went and they woke Him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And you hear the fear in their voices, don't you? But you don't really hear much of the anxiety until you turn to Mark's Gospel because in Mark's Gospel, uh, the disciples, when they come to wake up Jesus, they say, Master, Master, don't you care about us? We are perishing. There's the anxiety. And you know, it's, it's one of those moments for the disciples. I know you know it because you've all experienced it. One of those moments where they're like, yeah, okay, in a very technical, logical sense, we know He cares. But in a, another very real sense, what we're feeling right now, we have to ask this question. Because our boat is sinking and there Jesus is sleeping and it seems like there's no hope. And fear and anxiety and panic have now gripped our hearts. And we're like, Jesus, don't you really care? I mean, seriously, we're, we're drowning. Fear and anxiety are the def- default modes of the disciples here. Now, if you flip over to chapter 9, as we think about the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus here in this account, 
These people have begun to gather, and, and now they have no place to go, and no place to get food or to get, get water. And the disciples are like, Jesus, we have a problem here. Okay? It kind of crept up on us. But now we're in a pretty predicament. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, well, feed them. And you can imagine the disciples like, uh, what? What do you mean, feed them? Okay? And, and you hear it as they're dialoguing with Jesus in this passage. Yeah, they say, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. Okay? You can hear the fear in their voices. It's like the caterer. Uh, sorry, it's like the, the event planner who's planning a wedding and the caterer calls last minute and says, sorry, I can't make it. And the, the wedding planner is saying, okay, well, what in the world am I going to do? This is an impossible predicament. It's interesting if you flip over both Matthew and Mark's gospel, they provide even more context to the story because in both of those accounts, Jesus doesn't generally tell the disciples, go and feed them. In, in the accounts in Matthew and Mark, Jesus specifically is speaking to Philip, Andrew, and John. And he says to Philip, Andrew, and John, feed them. Something interesting about that, Philip, Andrew, and John, you might wonder, well, why does Jesus speak to Philip, Andrew, and John? Okay, Philip, Andrew, and John were from the Sea of Galilee. You remember that? They're fishermen. Okay? And, and Jesus is saying to these men on their home turf, hey, feed them. I can just imagine the feeling for them. Yeah, this is, this is our home turf. And we're fishermen. We're supposed to be able to feed people. And we really want to resolve this problem, but we can't. They might have been a little bit embarrassed. Definitely discouraged. And in Matthew's Gospel, Philip says to Jesus, Jesus, six months wages worth of food wouldn't even make enough for everybody to have just a little bit. This is impossible. So fear and anxiety grip them as they think about how to respond to the forces of nature that stand before them. Fear and anxiety are our default reactions. When we come into contact face-to-face -face with the forces of this world that seem opposed to us, when life seems to be out of control, Fear and anxiety are the things that grip us when we're tossed back and forth like the disciples on the sea or we're put into unmanageable positions like the apostles with the 5,000. Fear and anxiety become our default reaction. Now you might have noticed, but fear and anxiety also are part of our culture. They seem to have become very important tools in the influence of our culture. And this all kind of adds to the building of the fear and the anxiety that people now experience today. You see, our culture has realized that to motivate masses of people to get some sort of urgent or timely response, that fear is one of the most powerful tools, okay? So if you're afraid of gaining weight, you're going to join our weight loss program, right? If we could just cultivate that fear, if you're afraid of being alone, you're going to join our dating website. You can just cultivate that fear. If you're afraid of COVID enough, you'll just stay home, okay? Uh, if you're afraid that 
things are going to be bought up in the grocery store, you're going to go hoard the toilet paper, okay? Fear is a powerful motivator. And to get people to purchase a product or to join a political party or to be part of a movement, fear and anxiety are the things that our culture has found to cultivate among the masses of people, okay? Something that we have to be aware of. It's part of our culture. This is what we experience on a daily basis. It's why the founders of this country believed that a capitalistic society could not exist if not for a God-fearing and moral populace, okay? Because capitalism, driven by fear and anxiety, by an underhanded group of people who use that to motivate the masses, it implodes upon itself. It can't exist. It can't continue. And yet that's the world we live in. Okay, fear and anxiety are our default reaction. That's what's happening in both these passages. The disciples, the apostles, they are gripped by their fears and their anxiety. Yet in response to that, if you look at chapter 8, Jesus says to the disciples in verse 25, He says, He said to them, Where is your faith? He said to them, Where is your faith? Now that's an interesting question. Okay. Jesus says, where is your faith? And it begins to paint the picture of what faith in Christ actually entails. Okay? Jesus will begin to explain in just a short period of time what it looks like to have faith in the Lord of all creation and the Savior of sinners as He dialogues with the disciples and the apostles here. Now let me kind of show you, I think, what is happening in this text. Okay? As Jesus is speaking to His disciples here about faith, uh, uh, what is happening in this passage is that uh, Jesus is confronting a group of men who I believe have made some logical conclusions about the situations that they're in. These are logical conclusions. They're based on experience. These are the things that the disciples can observe and make decisions about. And let me tell you what are the mental calculations that are going through the disciples' minds at this point. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They're in a boat, okay? Boats aren't meant to have water in them. You know that. Boats aren't meant to have water in them, and their boat is beginning to fill up with water. And at first, it's just a little bit of water, but now it's a lot of water. Once a boat has too much water, a boat sinks. When the boat sinks, we drown. When we drown, we die, okay? That's the mental calculation. Think about the passage in chapter 9. People are coming to see Jesus, but you know what? Now, lots of people are coming to see Jesus, now Jesus is speaking for a long time. People have stayed a lot longer than they thought they would. The people, the masses of people, they have no food. They have no water. Once people have no food and no water for too long, then there's sickness and there's chaos and there's panic and things get really bad really quickly. That's the mental calculations they're making. And so the fear and anxiety they're experiencing in one sense is, is just an estimation of the situation they're in. They're, they're taking account of the probabilities, figuring what will happen. Now, let me tell you, we've been through some of the very same mental calculations this past year. Yeah, as a church, right? Here's a mental calculation. I don't know if you did this in your mind, but I did this. The mental calculation went like this. Last March, we got kicked out of the public school, okay? And we said, where are we going to meet? And there was nowhere to meet. And we made a decision, we're going to meet outside, okay? And when you make a decision to meet outside, you do it knowing full well that you're at the whim of the heat, the cold, the rain, the wind, the barking dogs, and the fire ants, and everything else in between, okay? 
You make that decision. But you realize, being at the whim of all those things, that it creates a general sense of discomfort. And the calculation goes like this. A general sense of discomfort among a church, a group of people, means that people leave the church. When people leave the church, the church gets smaller. When the church gets smaller, eventually the church closes. All right? Now, I know that escalated quickly. But those are the mental calculations, okay? And you've done some of the same things, right? You have have kids, and if if your kids were in a school that got shut down, here's the calculation you did. My kids' school got shut down, and they're going to virtual school, but nobody learns through virtual school, okay? And so my kids won't be learning for the next three, six, nine, 12 months, whatever. And once kids don't learn, then they don't have a future. And once kids don't have a future, then what are they going to do, okay? Mental calculations. I know, not entirely true, but those are the things we think. I lose my job. I lose my job, I can't pay the bills. Once I can't pay the bills, I can't keep my house, I can't keep my car. When I can't keep my house and car, then what is there to live for? I mean, really. I get a cancer diagnosis, right? A cancer diagnosis with a high mortality rate. Then there's a probability I'm figuring in my head. Then what is there to live for? Just a countdown? I mean, is there any purpose? Is there any meaning? Those are the mental calculations that go through our minds when we encounter the events that are similar to what the disciples encounter in Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. And just as a side note, that's why I have to say, apart from Christ, I don't know what the world does when they encounter these things. I really don't, okay? I don't know what you do in the world if you get a cancer diagnosis It's very grim, And the doctor can say to you, well, you've got a 2% chance. And there's nothing beyond that. That there's no bigger picture. There's no deeper hope. There's no more meaning. It's just that. Or when you lose a job and there's no Christ in the picture, then the only answer is, well, you're a failure. People who are successful, they keep their jobs. You didn't keep your job. You're a failure. There's no purpose or meaning to this. It just is what it is. Okay? That's morbid. But it's the reality of the world apart from the hope of Jesus Christ. Those are the mental calculations the disciples are making in Luke chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. And Jesus does something miraculous. He introduces a new variable. Okay? He introduces the variable of faith. That's why he says to them, where is your faith? And this is the last point in your handout. uh, That through eyes of faith, we see more of Christ and less of our fear. Through eyes of faith, we see more of Christ and less of our fears. You see, the the faith that Jesus describes in chapter 8, the faith that he calls the disciples to in chapter 9, that faith as described by him here, it's not a blind faith. It's really not. That's the way we often tend to think of faith, but that's not what Jesus is speaking about. It's not a faith that's that is not grounded in reason or is unreasonable. It's not a faith that seems to be illogical. What Jesus speaks about here is a very calculated, reasonable faith that he exhorts his followers to. And let me show you where we find that. If you look in chapter 8, in verse 25, it says, you know, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. When you hear that question in chapter 8, does it feel weird to you? It feels weird to me because we're only in the 8th chapter of Luke, but I feel like they've asked that question a dozen times, okay? I feel like every story we've read so far, 
Jesus does something miraculous, and the disciples say, well, well, who is this? Like, they had never thought that Jesus could do this. Jesus casts out a demon, and the people around him began to say, well, who is this? It has the power to cast out demons. Jesus heals, and he's healing those who are blind, and he's healing the lepers. Remember in chapter 6 of Luke, he's doing it for like an hour. And the people around him, they say, well, who is this that, can, that has the power to heal? Jesus raised the boy from the dead in Luke chapter 7, and the people who were there, his, his own disciples, they said, well, who is this that has the power to raise from the dead? Just a few verses earlier, Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. And you remember, what's the next line? The people around him, they said, well, who is this has the power to forgive sins? You would think at some point, okay, the disciples would stop saying, who is this? And they would say something like, but that's just Jesus. We've seen him do it. Just what Jesus is going to do, but every step of the way, who is this? When we think about the disciples here, you see they've got this sort of naive understanding of Jesus, a forgetful nature of all that he has done. And Part of the context of this passage is like, really, do you guys really, he's the same one who 50 times now has done this. He's the same one who in a very predictable fashion has exercised authority over all of life and over all of creation and over all of sin, uh, has a dominion over all that your minds can comprehend. And so what Jesus is exhorting the disciples to do here is not, again, a blind faith. He's simply exhorting them to take him into account. He's simply exhorting them, when you do your mental calculations and you're thinking about children not being in school or the cancer diagnosis, or you're thinking about your boat sinking on the sea, or you're thinking about not being able to feed the 5,000, or you're thinking about as a church having to meet outside the whole year and, well, we might be closed in a year. How's this going to work? As you're thinking about that, simply let the Lord of all creation enter into your calculation. Just take Him into account. Like the beginning this morning when Mike said to me, well, Brian can do it, okay? The resolution to this passage is we're with Jesus. Jesus is with the disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. He's with the disciples as the 5,000 people are there. And when Jesus said to his disciples, you feed them, you think having witnessed everything, they would have said, all right, Jesus, don't know how, but if you say it, we're going to do it. And that is why, even as we read this passage, we see even affirmed in this text the authority and the power of our Lord and Savior. And it's miraculous, right? He's on the sea, and what does he do? He says to the wind and the storm and the waves, he says, you, stop. Quit it. Just be done. That's what it means to rebuke, okay? Like you would say to a child, enough. And the wind and the waves, they stop. He says in Luke chapter 9, I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but he says to two dead fish and five loaves of bread, to seven inanimate objects that might feed five or ten people, he says to those inanimate objects, you will feed 5,000. And the dead inanimate objects, the fish that had been pulled out of the sea and the bread that had been baked, they yield to the Lord of creation. And they feed 5,000. 
As Jesus speaks about faith here, he's simply exhorting his disciples to just take him into account, to remember him, to remember his closeness to them, his faithfulness to them. You see, we do the same thing with our own forgetfulness. We do the same thing. It's easy for us to look at the disciples and say, what fools? How many times does Jesus have to show them, right? But we do the same thing. We encounter the trials of our own lives. We have a long history of God's faithfulness to us. We've seen His miraculous work. We've witnessed it in other people. We have read about it in Scripture. We have seen it in the history of the church, the history of our own country. We see these things. We encounter trials, and we say, oh, whatever am I going to do? Jesus proves His faithfulness to us, and and then we say, well, who then is this? Like it's the first time we've ever seen it. Jesus, as he says to the disciples, where then is your faith? We ought to hear him saying to us, okay? Where is your faith? Which is to say, why haven't you taken me into account? Why haven't you considered the one you're with? Why haven't you begun to think in this relationship with me that I would exercise my authority over all creation for your good? Of course I will. Of course I will. And so Christ exhorts us this morning to that kind of faith. And as He reminds His followers again and again, the question is, has this really factored into our calculation? Have we really begun to think of our Lord and Savior in these terms? And as Christ reminded His disciples again and again of His faithfulness, He will once again remind His followers four chapters later. One of my favorite passages in Luke chapter 12, this is where I want to end. This is what Jesus says. This is a summary, okay, of everything we read about in chapter 8 and chapter 9. Jesus says to His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, The body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom. These things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, 
we thank you for the plan that was laid out in eternity past. Among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a plan of redemption that included the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the taking on a flesh for the express purpose of the breaking of that flesh, of the pouring out of that blood. That the wrath of God might be satisfied. The wrath of the Father. That the penalty for sin might be paid. That the righteousness of eternal God, very God of very God, might be given to us. And now we are righteous by the blood of Christ. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we go about our lives in this world, though we are in this world, we are not of this world. We ask that being here, you would prepare us for every good work. That you would fortify our hearts for every trial and challenge. That as we think about the various things that creep into our lives in this world, the big and the small challenges of this life, that you would encourage our hearts that we would more and more rest upon our Savior Jesus Christ. That we would simply take Him into account. And that we would see our Savior who has authority over all things. And that then we would have peace in our hearts that surpasses all understanding. We thank You. We praise Your mighty hand. We glorify Your holy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.